everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple. I have a very special guest with us today. Uh, you, you all know him very well, I'm sure. SNY MLB insider and author of Cheated, the inside story of the Astros scandal and the colorful history of sign stealing, uh, Andy Martino. Andy, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. Welcome. Tim, thank you for having me. I was just telling you before I hit record, um, really, congratulations on just some outstanding work on Cheated. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I had a lot of fun doing it. It was a chance for me not just to write about science stealing and the Astros, but kind of just put together all, a lot of things I learned covering the game and, and what's going on, the game within the game, the things that we don't always pick up on on TV or in the press box or from the stands. So I just had a blast doing it. It made me love baseball even more. Oh, and it really, I mean, just from, from the reader's perspective, it's like you, you put a puzzle together from the origins of, of sign stealing itself to, um, I guess, A.J. Hinch and then Beltran, mm-hmm. his, him learning the trade and technology kind of leading the way into things boiling over. I mean, just uh, all, encamp- all encompassing stuff. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, it felt like, you know, you learn something new every page turn. Was it kind of the same for you as far as researching the book? Um, did you find yourself kind of learning a whole new dynamic of this story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I started out with a basic interest in uh, Hinch Cora. Like, I had the idea to write the book the week that Hinch Cora and Beltron all lost their jobs, managerial jobs, thinking, mm-hmm. man, this is really interesting because these are three respected, smart guys, two of whom have won the World Series as managers. And they just lost their job. So what's what's the story of these guys? So that's kind of where I started. And, for you know, to a great extent, stayed there with the end product. But, yeah, there's so much that I learned along the way of how these things worked and how pitch tipping works and sign stealing and the difference between what's accepted and what's not and what's legal and what's not. And then just what happened There's a chapter on literally what the Astros did in 2017 and how it started and how Cora and Beltran were big parts of that and just building out my understanding of that, like literally what happened. I'm just learning more and more with every phone call. I remember like constantly having to adjust that chapter as I learned another little detail and a little detail. Uh, And then, yeah, putting together the history, like you mentioned, just um, again, like a chance to fall in love with the game all over again, because I think one of the things about baseball that's so rewarding for us as, as viewers is that there's always something going on that we don't understand or know. There's just, you constantly are learning more. Uh, if you have, if you're lucky enough too to have people explain these things to you, as I as I was able to in writing the book, because it kind of gave me a right to ask the questions or you know past ask the questions. There's people like Alex Corn and Beltron, like these guys just know so much uh, that we can that they see so much. So um, yeah, just so cool to be able to learn about that stuff. Yeah, and that's what kind of what it seemed like. I guess the the <laughs> the the chain of of events leading to Beltran, I guess, learning so much about that aspect um, and, you know, where it came from, I guess, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but, you know, it's origins in Toronto in the early 90s and kind of leading yeah. to Beltran. And it just, it almost seems like the story wrote itself at times. Yeah. It's that, it's that riveting. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember running into uh, Cliff Floyd at the uh, winter meetings in San Diego 
uh, in, I guess it was late 2019, um, when Beltran was the Mets manager at that time <laughs> and just chatting with Cliff Floyd and, and being like, you know, I learned all that stuff from Sean Green. And I'm like, huh? I was like, oh, interesting. And then, you know, I called Sean Green. He's talking about him and Delgado. And those guys weren't alleged to do anything illegal. It was just picking up on tipping and looking at the catcher and getting the signs. It's like these guys are in Toronto in the early 90s together. And then they're in the 2007 Mets. And David Wright told me that the 2007 Mets, of all random things, were the most sign-stealing team he'd ever been on or or seen uh, in, in his time in the game. Um, again, not illegal, like Beltron, Green, Delgado, guys like that, just do, looking, standing at second base, looking at the catcher, no video or anything like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, how they, how those traditions go back is pretty interesting. And rooted back to Cito Gaston, the Blue Jays manager in the 90s, who played in the 60s. So you're, you're talking about 1960s Braves that Cito Gaston was on to, to 2007 Mets, 2017 Astros. I mean, these traditions have a, have a long reach in the game. Oh, and I think that's, you know, it, it, that's the, the beauty of like the, the gamesmanship of baseball. It's just, yeah. it's there. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're savvy enough, you pick up on these things. And I think, of course, you know, one thing led to another and lines were crossed and they've been crossed in the past. But, um, you know, do you think that technology kind of, allowing this to happen. And of course it wasn't allowing this to happen. There has to be a conscious decision to, to use it, but yeah. it, it was widespread. I mean, plausibly widespread. And there's a lot more, of course, that we all don't know about what, what happened at, on a much larger level with the advancements and that gamesmanship. Do you think that, you know, it's just a matter of time before there's another scandal that pops up regarding, you know, sign stealing, whatever the case yeah. may be. Could be, but I think it'll take a while, Tim, because of a couple of reasons. One, MLB really did tighten up the rules. Even before the Astros scandal became known, mm-hmm. there were so many things now. There are monitors, like people assigned to the replay rooms to make sure that players weren't looking at live uh, feeds of the catcher. Uh, the broadcast, the game broadcast, the clubhouse were put on eight-second delays. It's, it's, it is harder to do this stuff than it was in 2017 or 18. Uh, and also I think that the mentality of the players has changed a bit. The way that the Astros were shamed by their peers for doing what they did, that'll be a disincentive for a little while. I mean, it was you know, Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa and, and those guys, they'll be fine in life. They're well paid and they still get to do what they want to do. And it's all good. But that was a pretty miserable experience that the Astros went through uh, and it was no fun there when that was going on. And it's something that so many people from Aaron Judge to Clay Ballinger to Marcus Stroman to so many others were so outspoken against it that I think it'll be a while. I, I think it'll take another wave of players to try something that serious again, which isn't to say that it won't happen, but I just don't think that we're looking at um, something particularly soon as far as that goes. Yeah. You know, in- I guess there's always going to be that line there. And, um, you know, I, I just hope that what happened is, is a deterrent in keeping teams or players or groups of players from, from crossing, you know, the yeah. line. It's just, uh, you know, I guess it's, a, it's, it's always dangling there. You just kind of have to resist. And uh, It is. Yeah. You know, I would say, sorry to interrupt, but another piece of that that I neglected to say why I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon again is that the calculus has changed for management. 
like um, what happened to Jeff Lunau, AJ Hinch, like people who lost their jobs. Hinch landed another one, but, you know, went through a, a terrible loss of his reputation and everything. Like if you're say Brian Cashman, maybe in 2016, you benefited from not knowing what was going on because, Hey, my team's winning. Now, if you're Brian Cashman, you're going to make damn sure that your organization's not up to anything because it's, it's your ass that would get in trouble, you know? So I think that that's or Aaron Boone or, you know, Buck Walter or anybody, they don't want this going on now because they'll, they'll get in trouble. Oh, of course. I've, and, you know, I think that there's the whole integrity of the game and seeing that that's still alive and well with all the backlashes. Um, I guess it's encouraging to an extent, just unfortunate the way it, uh, it came up, but really um, terrific work on the book, Andy. And Thank um, you. do you have a few minutes? We could jump into uh, some current events. Let's do it. All right. I'd love to. I, I miss talking about baseball. There's not enough baseball talk going on lately. Oh, it's, you know, and all, the only talk that we have is, um, it's just contentious. I know on, on Tuesday, of course, the Hall of Fame announcement came out. David Ortiz is in, but that's kind of been overshadowed by the couple of fellows who are out. Um, mm-hmm. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I mean, this is a very special case, of course. Um, up until, you know, Gil Hodges actually closed the book, but any player who received over 50% of the vote uh, at any point during their time on the ballot was eventually elected. Do you think that's going to hold true for, for Bonds and Clemens? Uh, of course, they're not on the ballot. It would be through a veterans committee. Yeah, right. It would be through a different process. I don't know. It's a good question. I think that as certainly as we get further away from the so-called steroid era, and I say so-called because nothing really ended. It just changed and evolved. <laughs> um, but uh, the voters, people who are my generation or younger, do seem to care less about uh, players alleged or confirmed to have used PEDs. I mean, mm-hmm. what did Alex Rodriguez get in this vote? He did pretty well, right? Fair. I think uh, just over 30%. Okay. So there's room for growth there and it's his first year. And I, I could see that happening. And it's not even just young voters. Like my friend, Dave London in Newsday, who's been covering the game for decades, wrote a column about how Bonds and Clemens should be in. And he's not alone in, in that regard. Uh, so I, I could see it. I, 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 think that these we get as we get further from something we can forget how it played in the moment and people have different perspectives and you know a lot of people grew up around the game in the summer of 98 and all that and rooting for those players don't want to think of them as as criminals who don't deserve to be in the hall so i i think there's a chance for as we move forward for so-called ped guys to be included i mean david ortiz has that on his resume as well to an sure. extent, and he just got in. Yeah, I mean, and it's all about public opinion. And I know and it's a different era now because of the public ballots, which you had an excellent article on that this week. I'll ask you about that in a second. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, especially with Bonds and Clemens, I think the outspokenness of players themselves and even veterans. I saw Rod Carew tweet out on Tuesday night how this, you know, a couple of very prominent guys were left off during this, uh, during this mm-hmm. election. And I think that's the level of that's what's going to turn the page when, you know, when they hit the the Eric committee um, is that level of support. I do actually, Mm -hmm. I could see it happening. I'm not sure if it'll happen. This, this go around this Eric committee vote, I guess it goes by different eras every couple of years, but yeah. um, Yeah. 
there's the, of course the, like you mentioned, the hypocrisy of, of Ortiz There's uh, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner and Todd Helton. The, oh, they're all making their way. I mean, there's a lot going on here, but I, I, I did find your story from this week a bit intriguing as far as the process of it and the, mm-hmm. the dynamic of ballots being public. I mean, would you mind delving into that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I, my basic thing is, you know, a lot, when I became eligible to vote, uh, which was in 2019, um, 10 years in the BBWA, I decided not to ever vote for the Hall of Fame. I knew I was going to go that way forever. I, I, I didn't want to do it. Um, I'm not the first. I mean, people more prominent than I, uh, Buster Olney, Tim Brown, people like that have had already uh, publicly said that they didn't want to be Hall of Fame voters. Um, so I felt like when I decided not to do it, I had to say, challenge myself to say like, well, okay, what's an alternative? What should be happening? And I came up with this theoretical thing, which I understand wouldn't happen, but was an effort to explain my, some of my issues with the process is that I think that this issue of is someone a hall of famer actually uh, distracts from interesting, legitimate conversations about the history of the game. Like it's so ethically nuanced what Barry Bonds did or in the era in which he did it. And the, the race component in that and the fact that the commissioner was and the union were p- a part of the problem. And there's so many things going on that you just say Barry Bonds, yes or no, feels impossible to me. And I think that's playing out as a mess that way or A-Rod or anything, anyone else. So I, I felt like and, and plus another element of this, which has nothing to do with PEDs usually is just the toxicity of it, the online judgmental nature of people who don't vote like in the in the, the way that Twitter wants them to or whatever. And like the <laughs> fact that it becomes so toxic. So I was like, well, what if there didn't have to be elections or Hall of Famers? I love Cooperstown. I love going there. I love learning about the history. Uh, so what if we just stopped having Hall of Famers and just had like a really intelligent, interesting steroid wing of the of the Cooperstown Museum, which was like explaining the context of the era. And we didn't have to be like, yes, no on these guys. And we could like actually talk about this in an intelligent way rather than some, you know, Twitter argument about steroids. It's tiresome. Now, again, I get, it wasn't what I was saying, like, let's actually form a movement to end Hall of Fame elections. I, I, I get that that's not happening, but I, I'm just like, I don't like this. I'm not going to do it. And like, so what would I suggest? So that's kind of what I came up with. And, you know, it's, it, it holds weight. I mean, there's got to be a, a better way. Because like you said, there's just, there's, there's toxicity. I think you nailed you, you hit the, the, the nail on the, on the head there. Um, you know, I, personally, I made a, a really, really strong effort this year um, to not comment on what I thought were bad ballots and only mm-hmm. applaud what I thought were really good ballots. And it made my, I guess, user experience a bit more pleasurable. But, you know, Twitter's not like that. And Twitter's not going to ever kind of adhere to those to those rules and yeah. those guidelines. Well, look, the online discourse has ruined things in this or, you know, made toxic things in this country far more important than the Baseball Hall of Fame. So <laughs> it's a symptom. It's not the problem. But still, it's like, God, it's, so, it's just ugh. like it's it's so subjective. So the fact that there's people are angry about an objective reality. It's called the Hall of Fame. It's not even called the Hall of Excellence. Like, if you were to take that literally, you'd put the most famous people in. Like Mark Fidrich would be in the Hall of Fame because he had one huge year. You know, like you, it's. Fa- but I'm not saying that should be the case. But there's no objective truth to this, and a lot of people act as if there is, regardless of what their opinion is. 
Yeah. And, you know, and it's, I guess it's, it's general off season discourse that usually I really enjoy, but um, I guess now with the lockout and there's really nothing else going on, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of just encapsulated the entire off season. And, and yeah, it's, um, it gets contentious at times. Any thoughts on the lockout? I know Emma, uh, the players association made some, uh, some people looked at it as caving. I saw it as concessions with hopes of kind of, getting stuff done on other fronts. What would, mm. what would you take away from that? Well, I, I think that, you know, by dropping the request of uh, fewer than six years to free agency and tinkering around a little bit with their asks on the uh, arbitration side too, at the earlier part of players' careers, I think my, my understanding the whole time has been that the players side understood that they, they'd, you know, taking a real hit over a few CBAs and we're, we're down in this, in this uh, game so that we aren't going to make it all up in one CBA and that incremental progress toward their ideas was the goal. So that appears to be the way it's going. I think that's ultimately hopeful to losing not that much of the season or spring training because there seems to be a realistic understanding that, as I said, they're not going to get everything done in one CBA. Um, and I think that the public's patience for this is going to be pretty minimal. I mean, I, I don't think that it's that big a deal yet because no one's really thinking about baseball anyway in, in January other than us. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not like the general public even probably knows that there's a lockout or thinks about it. Yeah. But uh, once we start losing spring training time, that that's going to be brutal PR uh, for, for really – for the league, for the players. But, you know, I think for the league too, it's going to be part of Manfred's legacy uh, if he's not careful. So they, uh, my thoughts on the, on the, like the nuts and bolts of the lockout are that I think the players understand that they're not on their final battlefield here, that it's going to be incremental. My thoughts on like the lockout, it's a bummer. Um, players are within their rights to fight for what they want. And it being a bummer to me does, shouldn't affect them too much, but it is a bummer. Uh, we missed the game and I hope we don't lose too much of it. And, you know, every winter, don't you get to this point and like get really excited to baseball starting soon. So it does kind of suck that we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That hope springs eternal um, feeling. It certainly hasn't yeah. been a, hasn't no. been up yet. You know, you have to, I guess, take it. I get, at least from my perspective, um, you know, I'm ardently on the, on the, on the player's side. And, uh, you know, they, like you said, they took some, they took losses in the last two CBAs and it's pretty much well known um, yeah. by everyone on both sides that that was the case. And, and I said it on Twitter this week. I mean, I, I think the players association knows that they can't go into negotiations asking for everything. Mm-hmm. They, they know that they have to kind of focus on, what's the most important facet of their proposal of their grand proposal right now is this kind of taking care of the younger players. Cause at, at this point in, you know, major league's history, uh, younger players are making more of an impact than they ever have in the past. Right. And I think that, um, at least the way I saw it was that veteran players were, you know, maybe as a group or just, you know, a show of solidarity saying, no, you know what, we'll, we'll wait our extra year for free agency, take care of the kids for now. And I was really encouraged by that. Yeah, and I think to solidarity part of it, and also part of it is just that they know. Obviously, this is the other side of players over thirty and free agency not getting uh, 
not getting what they used to get or what they come to expect. So it's like, wow, you better take care of us when we're young, if you're not going to take care of us when we're older. Uh, so that's, that's where they're focusing. And yeah, you can't get everything in one like, negotiation, like you said, and, and they uh, surely went in strategically knowing what they were going to drop. So I'm sure they're going through the process. You know, this is a bit of a kabuki theater too. Like they, they ask for these things and they drop their asks to make it look like they're being more reasonable. Both sides, of course, yeah. that's just negotiating. Uh, so it seems like it's where it needs to be. It there haven't been these um, big wars through the media or wars of words that happened in, in the spring of 2020. So that's encouraging because the emotions and the rhetoric haven't gotten out of control at this point. Hopefully it remains that way. Uh, and hopefully they'll just keep hammering away and get something done within the next few weeks. Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, you know, I'm old enough to remember 94 and that was tough. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, was, I was a teenager going, you know, losing a half a season of baseball. was like, what? <laughs> what are yeah. we doing right now? Like, come on, this is it's unnecessary. And then they come back, you know, and what it took to co- to bring the game back. It was um, I don't think anybody wants to go through that again. But uh, when things do pick back up, the Mets are uh, primed to be in, in, a, in a nice position, huh? Yeah, it's an exciting time for the Mets. It really is a uh, great time to be a Met fan. Not saying they're going to be in the World Series this year necessarily, but they're certainly in a phase of the franchise now where it's reasonable to hope and expect that they'll be in that conversation every year, which is great for the Mets and their fans. Oh, it's it's full speed ahead on the vision that was pitched to us as fans. And and I think, you know, all of us are, you know, we're over the moon heading into the offseason. And, you know, you put to, you know, put on the table what the, the moves they've already done, the moves that still might be coming. And yeah, it's um very exciting times. I think Buck is, um you know, at least from a fan's perspective, uh, uh, an applauded hire. Um, mm-hmm. The industry uh, seems to be just over the moon about it as well. Buck seems to be really, really beloved. He's very well liked. Um, beloved, I would, would not be a word that uh, <laughs> GMs would use probably that have worked with him all necessarily. Uh, certainly Dan Duquette would not use that word. I mean, he's a guy, he's a hard charging guy. He doesn't suffer fools. No nonsense, whatever term you want to use. Um, no one questions his acumen. He has been criticized as a micromanager many times in the past. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Uh, I, I like the hire and I, I find him just a very interesting person. And I'm excited to uh, talk about baseball with Buck Showalter more often because he'll be around. I think from the Mets fans perspective, he gives you that experience uh, he gives you that gravitas, you know, Sal Licata, who's a Mets fan who I work with at SNY was saying that his observation on watching Showalter and Epler just at that little coaches zoom news conference the other day about, about the coaching staff, just mm-hmm. like these are guys who clearly have experience and know what they're talking about. And that's great. I mean, when you had new managers and new GMs, you just didn't always feel like, as a fan, I'm saying this is what Sal was saying, like whether it's Rojas or Brody Van Wagenen or Mickey Calloway, it's like you weren't sure these guys had the experience to know what they were talking about. But you don't question that with two guys in charge now or Sandy Alderson, for that matter. Yeah. And, and then I think Sal probably nailed it on, on the on the uh, on the head there. As far as, you know, from a fan's perspective, there's nothing we don't have to worry about that side anymore. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. For, for, for certain fans, it's we're only really concerned about what's on the field. But, you know, for a large portion of the fan base, this stuff really matters. And, 
you know, I can't, I don't really count myself as one of those. I didn't care who the Mets hired as manager. I'm happy with Buck, very happy with Buck, but they could have gone with any of their finalists. And I would have been, okay, great. Let's go win some games. You know, yeah. it, uh, it is what it is, but uh, I think they do have, you know, a couple of um, items left on the shopping list, but for the most part, you know, they've done a, a, a lot of work in bringing things forward. As far as what still needs to be filled, um, you know, back end rotation, maybe another yeah. bullpen arm. There's certainly going to be a little some roster tinkering regarding some incumbents. What do you foresee? I guess kind of on the docket. I think you just nailed it. You just described <laughs> it the way I would. Um, and like you say, Kikuchi is a guy they could bring in because they didn't get Stephen Matz or the, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, they were ready to pay both Kevin Gosman and Max Scherzer, so there's money left there for pitching. And they know they need some protection in the pitching staff. There's such a range of outcomes with DeGrom and Scherzer from, uh, you know, Koufax and Drysdale to combine for 15 starts. Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, like we just don't know. Uh, so they need protection in the in innings and the rotation. And they definitely need some bullpen, too, if they want to be championship caliber. I'm interested to see how the position player stuff shakes out. They certainly – are willing to listen on the guys that we've been used to watching for a couple of years, McNeil Smith, um, not Alonzo, but Davis. Yeah. And it, at the same time, I wonder if the lockout pushes them toward keeping more of those guys simply because it's going to be a really quick off season. Once we start up into spring training, it's not like they had all of January and February, February to listen to offers for McNeil. And Teams may be finding a way to communicate right now, but they are officially prohibited from even talking about trades in theory, which I was sort of surprised to hear when I got the answer. And I was like, why can't, if the owners are locking out the players, why can't Billy Epler talk to um, Kim Ng about a tr possible trade as long as they don't complete it, but they can't. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that to me, that just means practically speaking, maybe you have more guys around that might've been traded. Otherwise uh, they certainly would need to trade people position player wise, if they were going to bring anyone in. Like I've heard from people in the organization that they were kind of interested in, in Suzuki, the, the Japanese outfielder, but like there's no room on the roster for that guy right now. You'd have to get rid of Smith or McNeil or both. Uh, so um, we'll see, but I, I think for the most part, they're largely done and I've never, had any sense that they were really on Chris Bryant, which I know some fans want, but he doesn't fit unless they trade somebody. Yeah. But I mean, when you look at it through that lens where, well, let's say we're moving a, a McNeil or, or a Smith and bringing in Chris Bryant to man third and left or however you want to yeah. shake that out, you know, then you weigh your, your, your value. <laughs> I think, um, yeah. Yeah, I think fans could be swayed, but uh yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm totally fine with the guys we just talked about st staying on board and becoming depth. I mean, McNeil's going to get his reps anyway if he's still here. But Davis and Smith, even his bats off the bench, even uh, Dom Smith, that there's a DH, um, you know, getting reps at first base or however the however Buck wants to play it. I think that could really go a long way in lengthening out the roster. Yeah, and that's uh, going to be something that Billy Epler really. Uh, we'll see him put his stamp on the team in that way. Like uh, different lineups, different configurations all the time. That was the, obviously the theory behind signing a guy like Eduardo Escobar. Yeah. He could be your everyday third baseman. He could move around. Uh, 
Marte, Sterling Marte, even a terrific center fielder, they've explicitly publicly said, uh, Epler has, that Marte's not your center fielder every day. He's going to move around the outfield. And so there's a lot of – they have the pieces to do that, and, and that will, like you said, allow them to work guys in and get a lot of guys at bats. I mean, when you look at the way a team like the Giants won last year and what's trendy now is for – a lot of guys to get several hundred at bats different here and there. And like, look at, look at Wilmer Flores played a lot of first base for the giants, but belt played first base. Like it, they do a lot of matchups. They get guys in and out of the lineup. I think we're going to see a lot of that with the Mets. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. That's what you see successful teams do. They get yeah. the most out of their whole roster and yeah, I'm all for it. Andy, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us, man. This was great. It's fun for me. I love talking baseball uh, and I appreciate the kind words about the book, Tim. So thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime. And hope to have you back once, uh, once things get back in, in full swing. And everybody, of course, if you haven't checked it out yet, the name of the book is Cheated. It's the inside story of the Astro scandal on a colorful, colorful history of sign stealing. Uh, yeah. Anywhere you pick up books, of course, we're always going to plug the um, your, your local bookstores, but I'm sure you could find it anywhere. And Andy, really, thank you so much again, man. All right, Tim. Thanks. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. You know the sign off. It's let's fucking go Mets. Sorry for cursing Andy and we'll see you next time. <laughs>